0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Here's the Plan, our new youth-led podcast where we're working out a 10-step plan to tackle the climate and biodiversity crisis. I'm Bella Lack.
1: And I'm James Miller. All of our episodes so far have looked at ways to address our planetary crises at source, how to cut emissions and protect ecosystems as quickly as possible. But it's a sad fact that the predicted impacts of climate change are already starting to hit us and they're happening far faster and far harder than scientists ever warned. And we know that in the course of the next few decades, these impacts are only going to get worse as the global temperature rises. So the reality is that as well as working as hard as we can on cutting emissions, we also concurrently need to adapt and to respond to those impacts. And that's what we're looking at today.
0: This week, we're speaking to Ralph Regan Vanu. Ralph is the Minister of Climate Change, Energy, and Environment and Disaster Management of the Republic of Vanuatu. Vanuatu has been described as the most climate-vulnerable country in the world. It's very susceptible to extreme weather and the impacts of sea level rise. And because it's a low-income country, it feels all of these effects much harder.
1: In this conversation, we find out how Vanuatu is dealing with the impacts it's facing the need for international support and cooperation, and what true global solidarity needs to look like in the 21st century and how we get there. It's a really important and powerful conversation, and we hope you'll take something away from it.
0: We start with an icebreaker in every episode that we do. And when I was sort of researching your history, your work. I saw that you hold lots of titles. So as well as being having been a member of parliament, an anthropologist, a researcher, a minister, you've also been an artist. Yes. Yeah. And I was wondering, to kick it off with a bit of a soft launch, how being an artist has influenced the way that you govern and shape your policies, if you think it has had an impact on that?
2: Well, being an artist, I haven't actually done art for a long time, because I've been too busy with this job. But it's something that is with me and I will be doing it again once I finish with this. But um, I draw my inspiration for my art from my environment and from my history and culture. And that is really what informs all my actions in the world as well. I'm trying to build on our cultural heritage, our natural heritage, our environment to make the world a better place. And so I think that's how my art is maybe... Maybe it inspires me, maybe it's just part of who I am and what I try to do. So in one sphere of life, I, I express myself through art, and in another sphere of life, I express myself through social action. That was
1: a wonderful answer to what could have been a very curveball question to kick off the interview. Talking about how your, your culture is part of your artistic inspiration, would you mind just giving us a bit of an idea for a lot of our listeners who may not be so familiar with Vanuatu, a little brief overview of your island and its culture and, and the people?
2: So Vanuatu is an archipelago, an island chain of about 80 islands in the Southwest Pacific. Your listeners will know it as the New Hebrides. It used to be a colony of the UK and France together, and it was named the New Hebrides by Captain Cook after the Outer Hebrides in the UK, right? Prior to contact with the Western world and colonization, we were just an island chain of many, many different cultures. In uh, Vanuatu, we have over a hundred different cultures with their own languages, distinct languages, for a population now of about three hundred and forty thousand people. So we are one of the most linguistically and culturally diverse countries in the world. But the whole island chain, which was named in Melanesia by anthropologists, and it means the black islands, so people who are black are in skin colour, it starts all the way from uh, West Papua on the island of New Guinea to the nation of Papua New Guinea to Solomon Islands, down to Vanuatu to New Caledonia, and then to Fiji to the east. We are, you know, one of the most culturally and linguistically diverse areas in the world with a quarter of the world's languages in a population of about 15 million people in total. So huge diversity. We are agricultural people traditionally, growing root crops. So root, root crops are the staple yams, taroes. Bananas are very important. Bananas were originated and domesticated in the Melanesian region, same as sugarcane. So then obviously fishing is a big, big thing in the islands. And um, we were colonised in the early 1900s, so very late. And we became independent very late as well in 1980. Then Hebrides became Vanuatu. And um, this year we celebrate 43 years of independence.
0: Vanuatu is the most vulnerable country to climate impacts. I'm wondering what impacts you're seeing on the country already and why is it classified as the most vulnerable country?
2: So we're, we're classified, according to the United Nations Risk Index, as the country most at risk from natural disasters in the world. And that's for two reasons. One, one reason is that we do have all of the kind of natural hazards. We we are on the Pacific ring of fire. So we're in the edge of the Pacific plate. And the australia plate which means in our very very small country of 80 islands we have eight volcanoes live volcanoes earthquakes every day uh, minor tremors every day and some big ones occasionally like we had a big one just a few days ago so we have the whole geological hazards and then of course we are a small island state. we have all the sea level rise issues we have all the tropical cyclone issues this year in the pacific we already have the cyclone season forecast And Vanuatu and Fiji will be the countries most hit by cyclones this cyclone season, which starts in 1st of November and goes till the end of uh, May. And we actually did have our first category four cyclone before cyclone season started. We've had three category four cyclones already this calendar year. And we are now, as I'm speaking to you, we're on the edge of another one that is heading from the north along our east coast down to Fiji. We are seeing both slow onset climatic impacts like sea level rise, the uh, freshwater lens that a lot of people use for for water is is becoming salinated. Uh, we are seeing changes in patterns of where you can grow things because of changes in climatic conditions. We had a three year La Nina, which is the longest La Nina ever in history, or three years of just rainfall, rainfall, excessive rainfall. And so we were seeing whole areas where people have lived like whole suburbs. Suddenly it, it's a flood zone. Never before was it a flood zone, but now we can see that it's going to be flooding from now on. And so a lot of people are now living in unsafe areas where they thought they were living in safe areas. They'd invested a lot of money in their homes, but now they're going to have to move or they're going to have to somehow get used to living in water occasionally throughout the year. So those are slow onset activities, but also then we have the extreme things like cyclones, landslides, extreme rainfall events and so on. And one of the biggest impacts for the government of Anuatu is we are a very poor state. So we were a least developed country all of our history until three years ago. And then the UN graduated us to the next level up, which is a developing country. So we're at the bottom rung of developing countries, which means we have a very low per capita income and obviously as a result, there's only so much we can invest in infrastructure, health, education, social services that a government is expected to deliver. When we have a tropical cyclone like we have this year, we've had three so far, Category 4. I mean, the strongest you can get is Category 5. Each one of them, we we do a post-disaster needs assessment to figure out how much it's cost us. So each one of them costs us roughly like 40% of our GDP in terms of response and then recovery. So response is the immediate response you have to do to make sure people have somewhere to live, have something to eat, have water, have shelter. Uh, And that usually takes like three months and then that's completed. And then you get into the recovery, like building back everything, all the infrastructure that's been destroyed, the roads, the schools, the health centers. And so that's what costs us 40% of our GDP each time. We don't have the money domestically to continue to respond. And the recovery from the previous tropical cyclone in March, when the one came last month in October, we just finished responding 10 days before the next cyclone came. It goes into a rolling kind of cycle of disasters, response, recovery, all the while there's slow onset events happening. There's always sea level rise happening and so on. And so for the government, it makes it very difficult to know how to allocate resources, scarce resources. The main priority is that people have somewhere safe. People are safe. That is becoming the biggest priority in our country just keeping our population safe And a lot of people now live in unsafe areas how are we going to relocate them how are we going to get the money to buy the land to make sure there's infrastructure provided and so on
1: that's something that we're going to come on to a bit later i think about loss and damage and and how important that might be for you but before we do that and you've kind of alluded to this it's these impacts are hitting you far faster and far harder than a lot of other countries around the world and what I'm wondering is, has that meant that you've had to start thinking about your adaptation far earlier? I think I read that, that you put together your first national adaptation plan in 2007. Does that mean that the adaptation effort is already
2: significantly underway? So, so basically for us, everything we do is adaptation. For us, uh, development means adaptation. Every step we take, every, every uh, program we implement, every bit of infrastructure we install, we have to make it resilient. We have to be adaptive to what's going coming. If our infrastructure that we build is not resilient, it's going to be gone, like in the next uh, event. We are adapting to a situation that is changing all the time and is getting worse. And so for us, adaptation isn't a thing we do separate to normal development, right? Everything is adaptation.
1: Have
0: you seen it being successful and do you think that the rest of the world can learn some innovation or some way that you are adapting that the rest of the world isn't doing currently?
2: I think one thing we we can show the rest of the world is, is our community resilience. So in Vanuatu, most of the land is owned by traditional clans. It's held under customary law. People live in traditional clan groups, in traditional settlement patterns uh, that have been there for you know hundreds of years. And so people have been living in this environment for hundreds and thousands of years. And so they adapt. What's happening now is that the changes are happening so fast that it's getting very difficult for this natural adaptation to be able to work, but but we have to do it. I mean, that's just the way you're forced to adapt. We're learning very fast how to build resilient communities. But the problem becomes when the area that you have always lived in becomes unsafe to live in, and then you need some sort of intervention. Right from outside, which is what the government is supposed to do. But I think in terms of some of the models for resilient communities, how we organize our communities, how we have traditional governance structures, the government is working with communities to build local government structures that draw on the traditional but also bring in government support and administrative support, budget support. These are some of the adaptations I think we can show to the world as an example. We can't really, we haven't got much to show in terms of how to build resilient infrastructure because we don't have the funding to do that. And that is one of the areas where we need outside help to give us enough money to be able to respond and build infrastructure that is going to be resilient and is going to last, you know, for many years as opposed to just one year. It would be good to know
1: from your perspective what international humanitarian and immediate disaster relief support has looked like in, in the aftermath of these cyclones that you, you've been seeing. Do you consider it to be in any way adequate?
2: Yeah, we do, get, we do get relief funding, you know, we get uh, both uh, money given for relief, and we also get in-kind assistance, um, dry food rations, what they call NFIs, non-food items, which is tarpaulins, uh, things like that. So we get those, and, and that is part of uh, my ministry, the National Disaster Management Office. We have the Red Cross, for example, we have a lot of the international NGOs, we have countries that come in to assist, and that is obviously very important, but... The real money we need is for the recovery and the building back better and building more resilient infrastructure so it not destroy the next time, so that people are safe and don't lose their homes and need tarpaulins or food or that kind of thing. So trying to transition our uh, economy to make it much more resilient, especially in terms of public infrastructure, schools, health centers, hospitals, roads, that is where the really cost factor comes in that we aren't getting the money for that. And that is something where we are looking outside for extra assistance because we can cover the cost of a normal road, but a climate resilient road costs 10 to 20 times as much as a normal road. And that's what you want to build. But you don't, you don't have the budget for it because your budget is has to be used for all the other social services that you have to provide.
0: You're talking about extra assistance, but Vanuatu was calling for a loss and damage fund in 1991. So the fact that, you know, it's still having to be talked about in this way is, is atrocious, Could you explain firstly what loss and damage is, a loss and damage fund, and whether there's been any progress in the last few years at COP27 and in the last year since?
2: Yes. So as you say, Vanuatu was one of the first countries to call for a loss and damage fund 30 years ago. And um, last year at COP27, the world finally agreed that, yes, it is something that the world will do is establish a loss and damage fund under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. There are discussions that have been going on since that COP as to what this fund is going to look like, where is it going to sit, who's going to contribute to it, who's going to benefit from it. And those discussions obviously are very, very fraught. We have, as a result of the meeting that happened just after the pre-cop at the beginning of uh, this month, there has been an agreement reached on the most important aspects of the fund. So we can say we've we've got an agreement. So the question now now becomes operationalizing it, and particularly where's the money going to come from? That's going to go in, and and how much of it is going to be given or committed by whom, and how fast? And then on the other side, how quickly can countries like ours access this money when there is a Loss and damage incidents. So there's going to be the the immediate loss and damage incidents like big disasters, and then there's the obviously slow onset loss and damage, and both of those have to be provided for. So well, yeah, it's um it's very slow, but uh, we're used to that. UNFCCC, the COP process is extremely frustrating for a country like Vanuatu. We've been in these processes for over 30 years. But we have no choice but to turn up and try and influence the discussion because we can't walk away because this is the only venue in which we are talking about climate change, which is the most serious national security threat to Vanuatu and the other Pacific Island countries.
1: That's really interesting because one of our previous guests that came on here was advocating to us for a a pretty radical change to the way that international climate negotiations should happen. Is there something generally, that, that you see as a different, better way of doing things that it frustrates you that we can't move towards?
2: Definitely, we need something better than we have now, because what we have now is not working. And so that is one of the reasons why Vanuatu was pushing for this advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice, because we're so frustrated with UNFCCC process, the COP process. It's like if you have a an argument uh, with someone, and you try and resolve it by talking, and you can't resolve it, you have to go to court, right? And so that's what we we are doing. We are going to court to provide another way to get obligations attended to. Perhaps some more punitive requirements that you have to do that kind of thing.
1: I know that the the US and the EU have both said now that they're going to put some funds into this loss and damage fund. From what I understand, the EU has being quite vague about that, and the US has said um, a couple of million dollars worth. I think. Firstly, do you feel in any way optimistic about developed countries' chances of contributing anywhere nearly enough funds to match the scale of the problem, given, I think, the problems that we've had putting funds towards mitigation and adaptation in in developing countries. And also, sorry, a second and distinct point from that as well is how do you think we decide which are the countries that should be receiving these funds? Would it be on the basis of specific events and attributing those events to, to climate change? Or would it be from general recognition of, um, in in the longer term, which countries are
2: suffering more? So to your second point first, the response is, the funds can be used both for the immediate large-scale catastrophic events that can be attributed to climate change and for, you know, the historical position many countries find themselves in as being the victims of of climate change. And I think uh, coming back to the first part of your question, you know, the, the public funds of developed states will never be enough. What we're calling for is innovative sources of finance that tax fossil fuel producers, that tax the fossil fuel trade, things like carbon damages tax, things like a tax on the trade of barrels of oil, things like ecological environmental taxes. The fossil fuel industry is the most profitable industry right now in the world, receiving trillions of dollars of subsidies from governments I mean, why don't we just shift those subsidies from the fossil fuel industry and put them in loss and damage, for example? Or for example, one um, thing we were talking about pre-COP in the AOSIS group, which is the Association of Small Island States, you know, taxing a dollar a day on each barrel of oil traded, not even produced at source, but when it becomes part of the market and traded, there are 93 million barrels of oil traded each day, $1 each you get $93 million a day into the loss and damage fund. And you can use that money also for mitigation. It's so much money that you can resource adaptation fund. You can resource the loss and damage fund. You can pay for lots of things just by taxing the source of the problem. And so in many ways, you create the incentive. If the producers want to pay less tax, then they reduce their production. And there's also an alliance now that Vanuatu has expressed its support for, which is you know, greater taxes on air transport. I think we need to really start, when we're talking about funding for loss and damage from climate change, we need to start talking about who's responsible for climate change and its fossil fuel production. This is the source of 86% of emissions, right? So we tend to be talking around the edges about things, but that is where we need to get the money from.
0: When we're talking about this legislation, lots of the treaties have an opt-in, opt-out nature. And I want to just ask you about the Fossil Fuel Non Proliferation Treaty. Do you think it would require all states to unanimously agree, or do you think it will still hold power if it has this opt in, opt out nature, the optional nature?
2: The Fossil Fuel Non Proliferation Treaty is this idea of a new international instrument to enable international cooperation to help us phase down and phase out the production of fossil fuels and help the just and equitable transition to a fossil fuel-free future. Currently, there is no international cooperation on the production of fossil fuels. So you can produce as much as you want. Uh, Countries like Australia are doing this, right? You produce as much as you want, you export it. So while you yourself are doing a very fast transition to renewables, you're still expanding fossil production for export to other countries, because when they burn it, that'll be their emissions. It's not your emissions. It's not Canada, your emissions. So we need some way to establish International cooperation about the production of fossil fuels, so that it doesn't become a country just having to continue to produce to satisfy the needs of its citizens, but it can be managed in a way that okay, we're all working together to phase out fossil fuels, and we can all benefit, and we can subsidize each other. There's financial mechanisms involved. There's cooperation mechanisms involved. And the thing about the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty is that the idea of developing this treaty starting with a number of states championing it, and then getting other states on board is the same model that's been used for many treaties. And the most recent one I I can think of is the um, Treaty and the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which has now come into force because it's got the required number of states signed up to it. So based on that model, it can work. And I think it's going to work because it's going to be like-minded states saying, look, we need to have this instrument opting in. You've got to remember that uh, large Long-standing international conventions like the Convention on the Law of the Sea, you know, the U.S. has never signed up to that. The Paris Agreement, the U.S. didn't sign up until just very recently. All of those nuclear treaties, all the nuclear powers are not members to it, but it it does provide norms for the rest of the international community to to come into, and so they're very useful for that purpose.
1: There's also discussions about phasing down and phasing out fossil fuels within the COP discussions as well this year. And I know this is something that you feel very strongly about, and we both do as well. And one of our previous guests, uh, a girl called Luisa Neubauer, who's a climate activist in Germany, she was talking about how she's very concerned that the presidency wants to change the wording and put a focus on phasing out fossil fuel emissions as opposed to phasing out fossil fuels. And I was wondering, you've you've come out of co-chairing the pre-COP. COP28 is just around the corner right now. How positive are you feeling about the wording that you think is going to come out of this COP relating to fossil fuels? And uh, who do you see as the, as the main allies calling for phasing out of fossil fuels? And who do you see as the main obstacles blocking it?
2: Well, one of the main obstacles is Saudi Arabia with the support of the US. But phasing out means phasing down. Phasing out includes phasing down Phasing down doesn't include phasing out. So we have to be using phasing out language, which is what we want to do and we need to do. So it's going to be one of the big fights of this COP is that language of phasing out fossil fuels as opposed to phasing out fossil fuel emissions as opposed to phasing down. How positive are you feeling generally? I never feel positive going into COPs from past experience. I always feel very pessimistic. But yes, we're going in to have the fight. We have, to have no choice.
0: Could I ask you, James and I have both done climate activism in the UK for quite a few years now, probably about a decade, and I think it would be really good to ask you what would be helpful for us to do as we go into COP. I mean, we've talked about governments, we've talked about the loss and damage, but from individuals and activists, how could we sort of act as allies and what do you think we should be doing?
2: we need to target fossil fuel production. That's where we need to put a lot of our energy into It's really the core of the whole system is this fossil fuel dependency. And there are many, many good ideas and, and campaigns out there for how do we address it, many good ideas. We need to start signing up and supporting these ideas and building them within our constituencies. And especially, are you guys in the developed world who are responsible for you know, fossil fuel production, fossil fuel consumption, you need to start uh, looking particularly at the the production side because consumption, there's all these excuses and greenwashing around the fact that we can capture emissions, that we can do all this offsetting, but really it doesn't address the fact that there's still so many countries that have new fossil fuel production in the pipeline in the future to be opened up. And for example, the UK, you know, after COP26, announcing an opening of a new coal mine. I mean, my God, you know, you, you can't do that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. So I think the focus for all of us should be fossil fuel production, phase out. I tell
1: you what, Ralph, nothing has made me angrier than than the, what the UK government has been doing in the last year or so with opening new coal mines and um, and new oil and gas. I don't know if you've heard about the, the, the latest bill that was proposed to um, continue licensing new rounds of oil and gas exploration every year. That's really appalling, but we'll we'll try, we'll try. And I know on your part as well, when you're going into international summits like this and you're thinking about the advocacy that you're going to do, the um, Pacific Island nations have a long track record, I think, of punching above your weight when it comes to your voice on the world stage. What is your opinion on why it might be that you have that particular power speaking on the world stage and, and how is it that you guys use it?
2: Yes so the Pacific islands do have that moral authority because we are at the front line and we have countries like the low-lying atoll countries of Tuvalu Kiribati which are literally going to disappear under the waves because they're very flat atolls countries like Vanuatu also are at the forefront of you know one of the most at risk of natural disasters countries in the world so we do have that moral authority and also because we have never produced fossil fuels right Uh, We just haven't ever contributed to the emissions. Vanuatu currently has emissions of, I think, uh, 0.00016%. And we had some great leadership back in Paris, where it was Pacific leaders who pushed for the 1.5 degree target. I don't necessarily think we have that leadership anymore in the Pacific. I hope to be, you know, proven wrong. The most effective Pacific Islands group is the SIDS. Pacific Small Island Developing States Group, which is different to the Pacific Islands Forum because we don't have Australia and New Zealand in it. Australia, having Australia in the Pacific Island Forum, it, it draws us back on climate ambition. We can't be as ambitious, whereas PSIDs can be can be very ambitious on climate change because it is just small island developing states of the Pacific. And the PSIDs is part of IOSIS. And then IOSIS is part of the G77 in China, which is the group that we are part of in lobbying at COP it's a very conflicted group, right? Because we have China in there, we have Saudi Arabia in there, and then we have us, the other end of the spectrum. So that whole architecture of groupings is something I was talking about earlier, about it makes it very difficult to properly talk about issues sometimes because you have to adopt group positions that you don't necessarily agree with, but because it's a common denominator of your lobbying group. So very much like politics. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, we have to always push the highest ambition in all the groups we are part of. And that is our job normally. The Pacific Island, the PCDS especially, we are part of the High Ambition Coalition. We're part of the OSIS group, we're part of G77, and we're always pushing the highest ambition in those groups. But the result we get at the end isn't necessarily our view. It's always the compromise position.
0: And internally, do you have support for that pushing and for those policies which you're trying to implement? Is adaptation something that people see as an inconvenience or a cost, or is it something which you have generally support on from from most people?
2: I would say generally there's support from most people on most of the policies that we uh, implement regarding climate change. We are now getting down to some of the you know the hardest things we have to deal with. So, for example, Vanuatu in our national energy roadmap, we have a target of 100% electrification from renewable energy by 2030 which is seven years time and we are on target to meet that. We are transitioning our electricity electrification sectors quite fast. So we will be able to be 100% renewable on electrification. But vehicles and ships is another story and that is a difficult part for us and in those sectors we do have pushback, you know. We have pushback from ship owners who say well what are you going to what's the alternative? How are we going to you know transport people and cargo between the islands? If we don't have fossil fuels, the same for vehicles, although vehicles is made easy. If you have electrification, you can have EVs, right? So, but there are still people who like their big vehicles to drive around. (laughs) As we develop a middle-class consumer class in Vanuatu, as well as the other Pacific Island countries, you do have that same, the Western consumer desires developing here that you do have in the more developed countries. But generally people experience the suffering that comes from climate change and because of awareness promoted by the government and non-government organisations. People see the link, generally there's an understanding of the link between high emissions causing disasters, causing people to suffer, and it provides a high level of support for many of the policies we have to address climate change and adaptation. I can
1: imagine. We know that the impacts of climate change hitting now, we know they're going to get worse into the future, and Vanuatu, of course, feeling that more than pretty much anyone else. I can see that going into the future, it's going to become more and more important for the world to develop a sense of, of global empathy, of of solidarity and, and cooperation between countries. But right now, it seems to me that we could go either way, that we could become more nationalistic, more closed off from each other. We could close all our borders to, to climate refugees. We're failing to get in any way meaningful or adequate levels of international support to countries that are, that are facing these impacts now. Do you think that we can provide the right levels of support to some of the, the poorest and the most vulnerable countries with the current kind of sh- culture and worldview in citizens around the world? Or do you think that in order to produce the kind of world that we want to see in the coming years where people are protected and where we can, I guess, manage this in a way that's best reflective of who we are as humans, that this is going to require some deeper culture shift around the world?
2: Yeah, well, I think the answer is we we are going to require a deeper culture shift. We are going to re- require a transformation of especially our economies and our governance systems, because right now it's very hard to see that we're going in the right direction. We are making big advances in some areas. In other areas, we're going completely in the opposite direction. Um, there's a lot of pushback. But, but it gives me hope that, you know, when there is a time of great change, there will be great pushback. And I hope that the pushback we're seeing now, that the, the things going in the wrong direction, in some way a response to the groundswell of people realising we've got to have that change. I think it's happening.
0: Could I ask you a massive question? We've spoken a lot about economic transformation in this series. And I was wondering, you, you spoke about economic transformation. What kind of transformation are you referring to?
2: In Vanuatu, it's very different to maybe the rest of the world. In Vanuatu, it is it is about being able to be much closer to your supply of what you need. So self-reliance, self-reliance in communities. It's very hard to speak like that when you, you're you addressing cities of millions and millions of people, right, which is the way most people in the world live, which for us in Vanuatu is a very alien way of living. Uh, I can't really understand how you would transform a city of tens of millions of people, or hundreds of millions of people, whereas in a small-scale state with uh, small communities like Vanuatu, the self-reliance which already exists in our societies is something we are trying to maintain and enhance as the basis for a resilient future. It's been the basis of our resilient past, and we just continue to make sure we don't lose it, is really what my political project is about, is making sure we don't lose sight of what is important in terms of being able to be self-reliant
0: yeah, it seems a bit unfair really, for me to ask you for an alternative economic model when you're sort of living in within a model which would make the whole world more sustainable and we aligned by it
2: we we are lucky. i'm I'm lucky to come from Vanuatu and we have this economy which is like a dual economy. We have the capitalist economy, but then we have our traditional economy, which most people depend on. and it's the economy that sustained us for generations that will continue to. and we have to make sure we have it or keep it intact enough to support us into the future, because the future is very, very uncertain.
1: That is a beautiful thing. And I know that you've done a lot of work personally in trying to make sure that it persists. So all credit to you for that. I do have another question, which I'll fire away with before I pass on to Bella to, to wrap up. But um, one thing that I saw in the news a couple of days ago was that Australia and Tuvalu have been discussing an agreement to potentially allow Tuvaluans to migrate to Australia in the face of climate change, because of course, they're one of the countries that are most vulnerable to rising sea levels, as you mentioned. Is this something that in general, you think we need more of in terms of climate refugees, more of these bilateral agreements between countries to try and um, in in anticipation and for the impacts that are already hitting, facilitate this flow of people? Or do you think maybe we need to look at at, at a more global level and get better recognition of, of the climate refugees and their rights?
2: Climate refugees are now most of the refugees that we're seeing in the world. And so we obviously need an international solution, but bilateral agreements like this are part of the solution. And countries like uh, Tuvalu, you know, they are the countries really at the front line of going to lose the whole country if there's sea level rise. So yeah, we, we need the international cooperation, but we need the recognition of the international problem. We need the agreements between countries at a bilateral as well as a multilateral level but also in the in the case that you're speaking of with the the agreement between Australia and Tuvalu I mean that that it's great it's really gracious of the Australians and all that but the emissions that they're responsible for is the reason why there's the problem. Tuvalu will go under the waves because of Global greenhouse gas emissions causing sea level rise which come from burning of fossil fuels which are produced by countries like Australia, which is the third largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world, and for it to make this agreement with Tuvalu while not doing anything about reducing its fossil fuel production and, in fact, increasing its fossil fuel production at the same time. Yeah, it's a bit grating.
0: Ralph, to wrap up, we ask everyone the same question, and I think it's particularly pertinent coming from you considering you've just co-chaired pre-COP. What James and I ask everyone is if you could ask for one change from government's from businesses and from individuals, citizens, what would you ask from each of those three layers of society?
2: From governments start to phase out fossil fuel production, from companies, I don't know what to say to companies because I, I, I'm i a from government and we regulate companies and I think regulation needs to be improved, enhanced. From individuals, I don't know, just start to, I mean, realize what impact your actions have on the world and join groups to make change.
1: That aligns very much with what others of our guests have um, said, you know, it's it's about realising your personal impact and, and trying to live according to your values in that respect, but also seeing yourself as a political entity and someone that can make change through democratic processes and engaging with businesses and governments. Um, and I think that is really
2: important. Well, thanks, thanks so much, Ralph.
0: Thanks so much.
2: Well, thank you for what you're doing. You're an important part of the solution, so thanks so much.
0: I think... James, that was one of our heaviest episodes. I don't know how you felt. I felt guilty listening to what he was saying because our lifestyles living in the UK are implicated in the developed countries causing lots of the problems for Vanuatu and other Pacific nations. How did you feel though listening to him speak?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important for everyone to wrap their heads around the scale of human suffering that's already being felt around the world. I think it's something that even us as climate activists find it hard to do, especially if we're so entrenched in this world that we've kind of closed our minds off from it because it can get incredibly depressing.
0: Yeah, and I think hearing him say things like each time there's a hurricane, it costs roughly 40% of their GDP. They only recovered from the last Category 4 hurricane and then had 10 days before the next one happened. Um, It's kind of this relentless cycle of impact after impact. And I think it's hard for us to even imagine. So, yeah, just pe- people know that this is happening, but hearing him speak just really brings it to light how immediate it is. And this isn't something to think about for the future. It's very tangible and it's very current for many, many people right now.
1: One of the most painful consequences of climate change is the seemingly now inevitable loss of entire nations. And Nowhere is a better example of this than the Pacific Islands. The Foreign Minister of Tuvalu, Simon Kofey, at COP26, he was speaking knee-deep in water, talking about the imminent existential threat that his island faced. And then again, at COP27, talking about how now he'd actually made plans to create a, a virtual reality version of his island and his culture to preserve it in the face of being wiped entirely off the face of the planet and the cultural heritage in that part of the world is so rich it's just it's absolutely heartbreaking
0: yeah and i think on the individual level i heard a story about a man called timothy he lives in on an island in the solomon islands called wolondi island Uh, that island there were 1200 um inhabitants and they all migrated except this one man it was literally his house and he would reinforce the wall around his property with bricks to stop the tide coming and destroying his property. And he refused to leave. And he said something like it wouldn't be the same. He wouldn't be able to look at the same trees, look out into the same ocean. And I think we talked about, you know, the loss of culture, but also the individual loss and the sense of place. And what I think is called solastalgia, which is just the changing of place over time and losing kind of your sense of place is something so so massive, I guess, and the fact that you can never go back.
1: But this is this is happening all over the world, right? Climate change is happening everywhere. And it is those countries that tend to be the least developed that are feeling it the hardest. There's that expression, I don't know who wrote it, but we're all in the same storm, but in different boats. And I think that's that's a very good reflection of the situation. We're all facing a warming climate, but everyone has different capacities to adapt and to cope with it and Vanuatu is one of the least stable and just the the scale of damage it's only going to increase it's thought that by 2030 climate change may cost developing countries about 290 to 580 billion dollars per year and reach 1 to 1.8 trillion in 2050 but you know it's how, how do you even begin to put a price on these things right? there's there's inherent uncertainty in the climate predictions in how that's going to affect extreme weather. We don't know what kind of impacts that's going to have on um, political unrest on on social unrest, on wars and disruption to to the wider economy. How do you put a price on on lives lost and on entire cultures lost?
0: I'm not a big fan of pointing fingers unless it's going to be productive, but I think there needs to be a certain amount of culpability and responsibility taken. In 2015, at the Paris COP developed countries pushed to include language that specified it didn't provide a basis for any liability for developed countries. And there's still this fear, I think, today. Tell me if you agree that, that, that most countries are scared of er- admitting any responsibility because it's sort of makes them liable to help developing countries. But I think the first step is admitting that historically developed nations, we're in the UK, especially the UK, is culpable. And Vanuatu, for example, still wants to have the opportunity to develop in the same way the UK had. And it's now our responsibility to ensure that that path of development is as sustainable as possible. And it shouldn't be any less accessible for these countries. So I think, as well as being tragic, what's happening right now, there is a great opportunity, and that opportunity can be harnessed if developed countries promise to give the right help.
1: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I think there has been a lot of caution and a lot of opposition on the part of developed countries like the UK, the US, and the EU historically to liability and culpability for what's happening. Even though, you know, from a scientific perspective, it's absolutely undeniable the fact that just a few countries have contributed the vast majority of emissions to the global atmosphere that are causing these damages. And the science behind attributing the effects of climate change to those impacts is only getting stronger all the time. And so I think if developed countries do fail to step forward, that might be somewhere where the law can actually play a big part in helping to tackle that, as we discussed in a previous episode. I see there's there's a really strong moral argument for the necessity of providing this funding to the least developed countries. They're feeling the consequences most, despite having contributed to the problem the least. I think there's an absolutely clear moral imperative there. But there's also, I think, a really strong selfish perspective for financing loss and damage and for adaptation, which is the fact that we live in such a globalized world, we're all so connected that it's really foolish to think that we can totally disconnect ourselves from the suffering and turmoil felt on the other side of the planet i think the the russia ukraine war has shown us that you know any shocks to the food system wars mass migration these impacts are just they're going to be inescapable to the rest of the global community as well if we want any kind of economic stability any kind of security the best way to protect ourselves is to protect everyone and I think unless we can adopt that mindset and that attitude, well, we, we're we going to head to a very dark place.
0: Talking about responsibility, talking about what Ralph mentioned when I asked what can activists do, he said, we need to shift away from fossil fuels and we need to realise what our own countries are doing. We need to touch on the fact that the UK right now is commissioning new oil and gas licences. And in the UK's justification six days ago on the the government's website, they said the oil and gas industry supports around 200,000 jobs in the UK and adds 16 billion annually to the economy. And they also added that the UK still relies on oil and gas for its energy needs, and it's predicted it will until 2050. So they're using the fact that we're reliant on fossil fuels to justify our reliance on fossil fuels, which seems to be this kind of cognitive dissonance that an addict would use to say, I need to have more of this substance because I'm addicted to it. And that is what we are. We're addicts in our country to fossil fuels. And it's terrible that people in government can't see it right now.
1: Yeah, but that's the thing. It's so powerful hearing it come from him. I think he, as the minister in, in charge of climate adaptation on the most climate vulnerable country in the world, is in a position of enormous moral authority to talk to countries like us and call us out when we're doing absolutely the wrong thing.
0: What to you stood out the most as a lesson that he told you in, in the episode?
1: The thing that I think stuck in my head is, firstly, that, that everything he said all decisions they make, all infrastructure they build, it's all adaptation because they are constantly facing these challenges posed by climate change and constantly building with that in mind. So it's at the heart of everything they do. And that is just so totally different from where we are in the UK, reflective of the fact that we aren't being hit as hard as Vanuatu is, but also the fact that the government just isn't there yet with adaptation. And the other thing was, you know, when we were speaking to him, we were hoping to gain some insights, I think, into what the world could learn from Vanuatu in terms of adaptation. And he said, you know, there's there's plenty to learn from a community resilience perspective, but that in terms of building resilient infrastructure, Vanuatu really doesn't have that much to share with the world because it hasn't been able to build any because it doesn't have the money. It All it can do when 40% of its GDP is taken away in a single cyclone, it just has the resources to build back what was already there. It has nowhere near the funds to build the infrastructure that it knows it needs to future proof itself against these kinds of events. That was just, I don't know, that was really powerful to me. It made me stop and think. What about you?
0: I think um, he used a statistic. He said taxing a dollar a day on each barrel of oil traded. So that would be 93 Million dollars into the loss and damage fund. So it's not really about a lack of funds. So I guess it's about mindset.
1: I tell you what, sorry, on that, it just seems like such a clear and obvious thing to do, simultaneously creating a strong disincentive for the pollution and at the same time mobilizing millions, billions of pounds from the people that are the most responsible for the crisis.
0: I haven't got any more points. Have you?
1: there's one more thing I wanted to talk about, which is the issue of climate refugees. and I've got some statistics here. In 2021, the UN released some data showing that the number of people displaced by climate change-related disasters since 2010 has risen to 21.5 million people. That is just people displaced by disasters. It doesn't account for um, things like sea level rise or gradually changing conditions. And it's thought that in a worst case scenario, there might be 1.2 billion people displaced by climate change by 2050, you know, in just 25, 30 years time. That's more people than lived on this planet 200 years ago. It's It's horrifying really. Currently, we're totally unprepared for that. Immigration is already a contentious issue in Europe, and unless we find a way to to help those people exist where they currently live and prepare the world for dealing with that level of of human displacement and migration, then we're going to be in a very, very difficult place. Should we talk about some action points for people to take away?
0: I think the most evident and important one is we have um, COP28 coming up. At COP27, there was a pledge to commit to the loss and damage fund. In 1991, Vanuatu asked for something similar to a loss and damage fund. So this is something historical, which has been going on for a long time. And I would say it's still, it's not outside of the realms of the environmental sphere in a way. It's, it's not something people talk about over dinner or when they're talking about climate. And I think one of the most important things we need to do is open up the discussion of loss and damage, of equity, and bringing everyone along together in this climate transition. So talking, but obviously never stops with talking, so campaigning. And in the next few weeks in the run-up to COP, whoever your government is, look at what they pledged at COP27 and what they're promising for COP28, and then hold them to account and make sure what's being said is being done, and what's being done is enough for what needs to be done.
1: Absolutely. And if you're looking for some more specifics to hold those governments accountable to, developed countries pledged to give $100 billion a year to developing countries by 2020 that we still haven't met. It's thought potentially that we might meet that this year for the first time, but three years too late. There's a, a cumulative shortfall from the previous three years of money that we need to make up for now. And that's that's been very damaging for global trust. So we need to make up for that money as quickly as possible by paying more. And we also need to increase the fraction of that money that's dedicated to adaptation rather than mitigation as well. That's what those developing countries want and need.
0: Absolutely. And I think another thing, even though me and you hear about climate on the daily, probably uh, sitting and speaking to Ralph sort of opened up a new level of empathy. And I think people need to constantly remind themselves what's happening and share those resources with those around them. So there's this empathy that that you talked about being, being opened up again and again.
1: On this point of, of trying to be more empathetic. One thing that's very concrete that I would ask everyone to do if you haven't already is to watch Liz Watuti's speech at COP26. Liz is a fantastic young campaigner of our generation. She is a Kenyan activist and she gave a speech on the main stage of the plenary hall uh, at COP26, speaking to all the world leaders to open their hearts and to really take a moment to stop and think and try to feel the pain and the suffering of people all around the world. Uh, it's a it's a super super powerful speech
0: this is completely unrelated but i was at this conference 2 days ago at dinner i was sat next to this woman who had just arrived back from an interfaith pre-cop session she said the majority of faiths around the world had a representative at this conference and she showed me a picture of all of them standing in this long line in this crowd holding hands and i guess it's just a powerful image of the solidarity and Collaboration that can come out of this if we do it in the right way.
1: That's beautiful. This could bring out the best in humanity.
0: It could bring out the worst, but it could bring out the best.
1: And with that, we should probably wrap it up there because we've been talking a while now. But thanks so much to everyone for listening in. It's been a wonderful final episode to finish off the series. We're very grateful to Ralph for coming on. If you guys are also grateful, it would be fantastic if you could help us out. There are several ways that you can do that first is if you're on Spotify, you could leave us a five star review that would be very helpful. If you're on Apple, what would be even better is if you could leave us a comment in words. Not many people have done this so far, so it would be it would be really great if you could. And if you really really want to help us, you can give us a small donation to help keep us going on coffee.com and we've got a link to that and our social media all in the show notes. And that wraps up our series. Or does it? (laughs) Or does it?
0: It actually doesn't. Next week, we're going to do the final episode that we're most excited for, which is a mass synthesis episode of everything we've learned. And we're going to bring together all of the ideas for our final 10-point plan. Are you excited, James?
1: I'm very excited. I can't wait.
0: See you all then for the plan. Bye. Bye.